Saturday, everyone, and welcome to another weekend edition of Fearless with Jason Whitlock. The recap of the Firestarters. On Monday, we were off. We honored our fallen soldiers, the men and women who sacrificed everything for American freedom. Uh, we can't say thank you enough. Uh, but we came back on Tuesday trying to thank you and trying to explain to our viewers and listeners how we've switched from a culture of gratitude to a culture of entitlement. And you can see that in Memorial Day, which was actually started in 1865 in South Carolina by black freed slaves who were so thankful for the Union soldiers that sacrificed for them. They started the Memorial Day tradition. I expound on that in Tuesday's Firestarter. 157 years ago, freed American black people inspired the Memorial Day celebration. At a park in Charleston, South Carolina, approximately 10,000 Americans, led by black school children and church leaders, gathered to honor the sacrifice of 251 Union soldiers buried at the site of an outdoor Confederate prison camp. It was May 1st, 1865, just three weeks after General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox and three months after Charles Macbeth, the mayor of Charleston, surrendered his city to Union forces. A spirit of gratitude triggered the outpouring of remembrance and desire to give Union soldiers a proper burial. Three years later, John Logan, the Commander-in-Chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, a fraternity of Union soldiers, proclaimed May 30th as Decoration Day. A hundred years later, Congress renamed it Memorial Day. The origin of Memorial Day is more important today than perhaps at any time in America's history. It highlights a sad and tragic pivot in American culture. It speaks to black Americans' unique and powerful influence on the zeitgeist. America's shift from a culture of gratitude to entitlement can be analyzed and explained by a study of the attitude of black people. The Marxist forces seeking to topple American exceptionalism perverted the history, identity, and minds of black Americans. They turned this country's strength black Americans' faith-based journey toward freedom into a weakness. They turned the African-American journey into a narrative art that damned this country and its founding principles rather than one that celebrated America and the brilliance of the founding documents. Black Americans' pursuit of freedom caused this country to live up to its highest ideals and Christian values. Black men of faith, from Richard Allen, the founder of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, to Frederick Douglass, the slave turned abolitionist, to Booker T. Washington, the educator and entrepreneur, to the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. They all stood as this nation's moral compass. The left undermined the black man, eviscerating his authority in the home with government assistance and financially rewarding him for betraying any allegiance to morality. The history of black people has been redefined as a retelling of tragedy, oppression, and white supremacy victimization. 
This new narrative is focused on creating a sense of entitlement and inspiring other Americans to follow suit. It's worked beautifully. We've seen the formula work across popular culture. Nike rose to dominance, selling Air Jordans to black inner city drug dealers. The prevailing sentiment in fashion is to win the wallets of black consumers and white consumers will follow. Black people made gratitude cool in 1865 the same way we've made entitlement cool in 2022. Everybody is in constant search of victimhood. It's the easiest path to power. It explains why Rachel Dolezal and Sean King renounced their whiteness to identify as black. I've seen it happen within my own peer group. A former white friend of mine took on his mother's maiden name so he could benefit from being mixed race. He spent his first 35 years on earth content as a white man. Now he's not. He's part of an oppressed minority group, which makes him more valuable in the workplace. A couple of weeks ago, the comedian Bill Maher wondered why so many American young black people are identifying as gay or trans. Take a listen to Bill Maher and I'm gonna explain why this is happening. Broken down over time, the LGBT population of America <clears throat> seems to be roughly doubling every generation. <clears throat> According to a recent Gallup poll, Less than 1% of Americans born before 1946, that's Joe Biden's generation, identify that way. 2.6% of boomers do, 4.2% of Gen X, 10.5% of millennials, and 20.8% of Gen Z. Which means if we follow this trajectory, we will all be gay in 2054. <laughs> Gender fluid, kids are fluid about everything. If kids knew what they wanted to be at age eight, the world would be filled with cowboys and princesses. <laughs> I wanted to be a pirate. Thank, <laughs> Thank God nobody took me seriously and scheduled me for eye removal and peg leg surgery. It's not a mystery. Being gay, being trans, being bisexual, being some other identity than white has benefit. Being gay, being trans, it qualifies you for entitlement. Entitlement is the ultimate goal of American culture right now. Victimhood and entitlement. If you're a victim, if you're a member of an oppressed group, you're entitled to sympathy, jobs, promotions. Hey, my God, you're transgender? Let's make you the health, the assistant health secretary. Hey, you're gay? Let's make you the head of transportation, the secretary of transportation. It, it's, it's not a mystery what's going on here. We've been incentivized to adopt all these different identities in search of entitlement. Gratitude is out the window. Americans are in a race for privilege. We used to race towards freedom and we were extremely thankful for the men who protected it. Now we're locked in a death race for, for the undeserved privilege we think someone else benefited from, a privilege we pretend we despise. We don't despise privilege, we covet it. Worse, 
We don't recognize or honor the privilege of being born an American. Instead of falling to our knees to thank God for raising ancestors who sacrificed everything for our freedom, we waste our time on social media trying to analogize our oppression to people who actually suffered injustice. That's how a millionaire Major League Baseball player feels racially insulted when an opponent calls him Jackie Robinson. That's how LeBron James decided someone spray painting the N-word on his back gate of his mansion in Brentwood made him feel like Emmett Till's mother when she discovered that her 14-year-old son in 1955 was brutally beaten and killed. LeBron James analogized himself to Emmett Till's mother. This is lunacy, but this is what this entitlement and privilege has done to us. The desire for entitlement and privilege is yet another sign of our cultural decay, our secular pivot. We've abandoned our biblical values and principles of gratitude and forgiveness and adopted entitlement and privilege. Memorial Day has far less meaning today. Many Americans don't even know its purpose, the celebration of servicemen lost in battle. Another leftist comedian, John Stewart, complained this weekend about our lack of reverence for Memorial Day. He said, quote, it's hard not to be, it's hard not to be here today and not get frustrated again because as I look out in the crowd, I see the same thing I always see, veterans and their families and caregivers. But where are the American people? This is Memorial Day weekend. The American people are somewhere feeling sorry for themselves. The American people are preparing for Juneteenth, the national holiday in remembrance of the George Floyd riots. That's sarcasm. Actually, Juneteenth is a remembrance that black slaves in Texas were the last to be freed by Union soldiers. It became a national holiday two years ago in the aftermath of George Floyd. Juneteenth is a celebration of oppression. Memorial Day is a celebration of sacrifice and an expression of gratitude toward those who made that sacrifice. All right, hopefully you enjoyed that. Uh, and on Wednesday, I gotta say, we just had some fun. We had fun talking about Top Gun Maverick. Top Gun Maverick, the number one movie uh, in America, Tom Cruises looks like may end up being his most successful movie ever. Uh, I'm the wet blanket. We, we, Pastor Bobby, Pastor Anthony, TJ Moe, they all love Steve Kim. They all love Top Gun Maverick. I'm kind of a wet blanket. You know, I, it was a good burger. It's a good McDonald's burger. I like McDonald's, but it wasn't a steak meal. All right, take a listen. Anthony. You really came at me the way I thought Bobby would and still might in terms of like, there were underlying themes being expressed here that I wasn't aware of, could care less about, even with the, I get it, you get the explanation. I just would have done it differently. But that, that does lead me back to just a little bit of a biblical 
point of view on the show, Bobby, that I do, th that I think Anthony mm -hmm. has certainly taken us down that path. And you and I, in talking yesterday or the day before, you, most of Western civilization literature and art is based on biblical principles or? Yeah, so there's a book that came out uh, several years ago <clears throat> by a guy named Northrop Fry called The Great Code. And he argues that behind all the great literature in Western civilization is the story of the Bible. Uh, there's also Joseph Campbell uh, tries to draw this out. He's a scholar talking about literature. And then recently Jordan Peterson, and I'm a bit of a Jordan Peterson fanboy, because Jordan Peterson keeps telling everybody that the Judeo-Christian foundations of our culture are important and that uh, there are all these assumptions that we're living by that we're throwing off and we're going to pay a price for it. And this movie epitomized that for me. And let me, let me just tell you the five ways how. So when you think of this archetype theme of uh, the Christ-like figure in a movie, and by the way, the Bible teaches that, uh, there's five themes of the Christ-like figure in a movie. So the first one is that it's, uh, he's a good man. Uh, so, so, so much of today is nobody's good anymore. Everybody's just different version of terrible. So it's a good man. There's a big challenge. Uh, he accepts the role of saving others. He's willing to sacrifice and die for others and he saves them. And uh, again, what, what's Tom Cruise doing? In the, in the movie, he's a good man. There's a big challenge with this nuclear plant. Uh, it's gonna take a lot of sacrifice and danger. He's willing to do it to save others. We actually think he dies, but he doesn't die. He lives and he ends up saving others. And it just makes you feel good. And it makes like, the world is right again. This is a way we think, and it's a, an ideal in our culture that we would be men like that. And so look, I, I like all of that. I just think it could have been told in a less cheesy fashion. Oh, I'm sure it can. <laughs> that's, it was just... You're going to a movie. But you gotta sneak it in. Here's the thing uh, about it. It's that great theme and you gotta sneak it in and then all of a sudden somebody realizes, oh, that was what was happening. You're going to a movie. There is cheese involved. That's, I'm, okay, it's a movie. Smothered in cheese is not necessary, it's, Anthony. It's, but no, I'm, I'm saying if we take that filter off, then some of that cheese goes away because I know, okay, I'm going to a movie. I go to any movie, I know there's going to be just some overt line of the, okay, I got it, it's a movie. But the other thing that I, these are filters that I watched, and maybe you didn't watch it with any filters. I watched it with these filters. One, I'm a movie. Two, Tom Cruise took this on as a personal challenge years ago to the fans of the first movie. They loved the first movie. They loved him in the first movie. He took it on to answer this call to the fans. We want a whatever happened. A lot of 80s movies ended with that kind of man. It was great, but what happened? But every time he wanted to do it, Either all the actors weren't on board or either it wasn't the right time. It was just it wasn't going to be done right. So he took it on to tell that story. So, yes, all the callbacks in there are to say to the fans, we know you loved it. Here's something for you guys. But if a person walked in who had no idea of the first movie, the callbacks 
kind of pull you in. Got it. But the story, I'm telling it's enough pressure in time for me. Now, the biblical side of it, like what Bobby's talking about, I see parallels with Paul and Timothy. Paul in his day was this, you know, brash, bold, highly educated, etc. But he runs into Christ who says, man, all of this, what you're doing is actually destructive. You're hurting the kingdom. Why are you doing this? Jesus changes his life, changes his direction. He still has the same power and passion for it. But then he gets locked up for that kind of work. How do I do this kind of ministry effectively behind prison walls? Does it stop his passion? No. And he mentors two of the greatest preachers we know, Timothy, Titus, from prison. Again, this time dynamic. I only have this limit that I've got to do, and I've got to pass this on to the next generation the best way I can. So in the movie, when I see him, the thing about time is you have to answer the call. You cannot, you know what, I'll do this. In, no, 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 you have to do it now. And that's the whole military order rank. It's yes, sir. It ain't no, I'll think about it. It's yes, sir, or no, sir. So when you answer time, you got to do, and, and he, oh, Jason, come on, TJ, man. Listen, <laughs> TJ, before you hop in, go, uh, go ahead, TJ, go ahead. Go no, ahead. no, I was just going to point out that I got on Rotten Tomatoes while everybody was talking here. The audience approval is 99%. Typically, the audience disagrees with the critics. The critics are at 97%. Jason is the only person on the planet who didn't like this movie. <laughs> yes, TJ. He's the one person. I didn't say I disliked it. <laughs> I didn't say, I said, Look at me. <laughs> How often do I have to confess? I like McDonald's. I like McDonald's. I like the double cheeseburger. Is this, I like how, the is this how you lose an argument? No. I'm saying, but it is McDonald's. And, and I disagree with Anthony's nope. nope. insistence that all movies are burgers. Yes, they are. No, no, no. The Godfather is a full course steak meal served. Nah, it's a Stony River burger. It is. It's a, it's a very good burger. The book... The books on most of these movies that we watch, ask people who really read critically, they'll tell you, oh man, the book for some I of these I've read the Godfather movies. book. But I'm saying, that <laughs> that's the steak. You're going to get everything. You can't no, no, get it all No, no, I had them that. both. I had the book and the movie. They're gotcha. both steak. Gotcha. They're both steak. Gotcha. I had, Good. I'm going to give Very, you another. This is a TV show. All right. I read Roots, the book. Okay. All like 1,500 pages. Saw the miniseries. Both Good. of them are steak. But Both the movie, of them are amazing. But the movie does not give you everything the book does. That's what that's what I mean when I say burger versus steak. Burger is ground up fat. OK, steak is give me all of this. What TJ just pointed out is the point we're trying to make. The critics will let you know this is McDonald's. There have been 99 rated movies that the critics are like, come on, guys. What is this? it's just a puff piece. It's just a, OK. The, I don't they trust were the grabbing, critics. But the critics, the, you, you're a critic. You're I, a, I don't that. trust the critics, though. They're I, okay. bought and paid for. Most of I'm here. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to give you another Shoot. example. Yeah. In terms of like, because I tend to not be on board with what everybody else thinks. Okay. I'm somebody that the way y'all talking about Top Gun Maverick is the way I talked about coming to America, too. 
I thought I enjoyed it just as much as the original. And all the critics that said uh, Coming to America 2 was hot garbage. And I'm like, are you kidding? As many times as I laughed out loud, <laughs> and as, you know, and all the, the throwback scenes or whatever, mm-hmm. Coming to America was excellent. And, and, and I, I think this movie is good for a lot of the same reasons you all think is good. I think, again, if we were in the 1980s, though, I don't think people would be ranting and raving about how great it was. Oh, they liked the original Top Gun. The 80s people liked the original Top Gun in its time, one of which you saw it at least 500 times. Let me, (laughs) let let me, TJ, you may be too young. TJ, have you seen an officer and a gentleman? No. You should watch it, you and your wife. These two gentlemen, I think, have. Mm-hmm. Y'all will admit that's a better movie than any of these Top Gun movies. It is, but I'm not trying to compare them. I'm giving. We can't I'm compare t- burgers now. No, 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 no not on this one. Burgers. Not on, not on this one. It, it's, it's. They're different I'm not, movies. I don't agree with that. They're different movies. They're different movies. But you don't agree with what? That an officer and a gentleman. Isn't a better movie than this cheesy that, Top That's Gun. correct. That's correct. Bobby, Jason, Jason, cut it you, out, Jason, man. You didn't watch it. You did. I watched, I watched Top Gun the original this morning. So watch this. Watch this. Mm-hmm. The scene where they had to get this training, they didn't. They failed miserably. And when they failed, he he asked them. He's like, "What happened?" And before they could get their excuse out, he says. Don't tell me, tell their family. Like, this is life, death, critical. And, and it's, it's, it's a bother for him to have to do it because, man, I, I'm, I'm a maverick. You, you see that from the opening scenes. I am, but I'm now, because of my life on the line, mortality, mentorship, my life is on the line. I have to conform to this because my life and my acceptance of this call has a direct impact on your life. That's the same passion that I flow with through ministry. I have to meet, yes, my marriage, my family, my kids. I got to get this right with God because what word he's put on my life and in my heart, I'm sharing this and this has an impact on the souls of everybody that I encounter. So this is serious. It's, it's, It's that kind of life and death. I see that kind of parallel in that scene. And if you fail at it, it has implications beyond your life. That's critical. Mm. I, I, <laughs> can I jump in real quick? So, Rocky's first bu- Rocky's first fight with Apollo had great implications. <laughs> That's a great movie. A good movie. Rocky yes. is a great steak. This was a double cheeseburger from McDonald's. But go go ahead, TJ. I'm, before, because I'm really gonna. Uh, put Bob in his place with my next comment because Bob well, just doesn't know anything about movies. Uh, but go ahead, TJ. Well, I may not either, but I do think we should judge movies based on their time. And some of those movies, when they were made, had to actually compete with other good movies. And so, you know, Forrest Gump is one of my favorite movies, but it was only number one for a short time because there were so many good movies coming after it that it lost its top box office spot, had to regain it, lost it again, had to regain it. Right now, we are so desperate for good movies. I actually wonder if there's going to be a bit of a cultural impact here that you can see just go back to the basics of what makes a good movie. And the box office can do $160 million of four days uh so i i want to just 
clear the air here and give everybody a little perspective here on who we're listening to. Uh, <laughs> Bob knows virtually nothing about movies. His favorite movie of all time. Listen to Bob's favorite movies of all time. It's a Wonderful Life, Gladiator, Predator, Transformers, Dark of the Moon, James Bond, Skyfall, and Thelma and Louise. I think was number six. That, not, that last one is not true. I mean, you asked me. You asked me this morning. And that was my quick list. Oh my. <laughs> and I just want you to know, every year at Christmas, a bunch of people watch It's a Wonderful it. Life I, I, I get it, Bob, but you're 60 years old. <laughs> this is not a serious list. All right, I hope you loved all the burger talk, all the movie talk. We're going to try to do that more often. Uh, I actually think this Wednesday, a little preview of next week, we're going to talk about Matt Walsh's documentary, what is a woman? So uh, stay tuned for that. All right, let me get back to recapping my fire starters. Uh, Thursday, one of my favorite fire starters of all time, uh, a guy, Charles Booker, is running for Rand Paul's seat in the Senate in Kentucky. He came out with an advertisement with a noose tied around his neck and basically saying, hey, vote for me, or Rand Paul's going to tie a noose around your neck. (laughs) Uh, Which kind of explains the entire Democratic Party, uh, which I'm saying their governing body, the DNC, the Democratic National Committee, should change its name to Dead Negro Confederacy. I explain. Democrats should rename their governing body. The Democratic National Committee, established in 1848, in no way reflects the modern platform, agenda, and strategy of the party. I got an idea. The dead Negro Confederacy more accurately characterizes the political party obsessed with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, the 1921 Tulsa massacre, and 70-year-old racial lynchings dead Negroes fuel the DNC. Yesterday, Charles Booker, a Senate candidate running for Rand Paul's Kentucky seat, released a 72-second ad featuring a noose tied around his neck. In the ad, Booker claimed mobs lynched his ancestors. Via Twitter, he stated three of his uncles were lynched in Kentucky, writing, quote, Lynching is a tool of terror. It was used to kill hopes for freedom. In Kentucky, it was used to kill three of my uncles. In this historic election, the choice is clear. Rand Paul may want to divide us, but hate won't win this time. It's time to move forward together. I mean, I just can't think of a more unifying message than that, than wrapping a noose around your neck and and bringing people together. I mean, this Charles Booker, I mean, he is the great unifier. Let's check out his full commercial so you can see it for yourself. The pain of our past persists to this day. 
In Kentucky, like many states throughout the South, lynching was a tool of terror. It was used to kill hopes for freedom. It was used to kill my ancestors. Now, in a historic victory for our Commonwealth, I have become the first black Kentuckian to receive the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate. My opponent, the very person who compared expanded health care to slavery. The person who said he would have opposed the Civil Rights Act. The person who single-handedly blocked an anti-lynching act from being federal law. The choice couldn't be clearer. Do we move forward together? Or do we let politicians like Rand Paul forever hold us back and drive us apart? In November, we will choose healing. We will choose Kentucky. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but certainly don't you feel healed after watching that commercial? I mean, that noose tied around his neck. What could be more healing than that? Charles Booker's commercial criticized Rand Paul for blocking federal anti-lynching legislation. The accusation is completely disingenuous. After objecting to a proposal that failed to properly define lynching, Rand Paul, alongside Republican Tim Scott and Democrat Cory Booker, co-sponsored the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act that is now federal law. Now, the, the law is completely purposeless, cosmetic, and totally political. For the last 60 years, death by lightning strike is far more prevalent than lynching. What has become prevalent in recent years is leftist public figures and political activists using relics of America's racist past and dead black criminal suspects to advance their careers. Charles Booker stole his campaign strategy from Jesse Smollett, the actor who tied a noose around his neck to gain popularity. The ploy backfired on Smollett, but it worked for NASCAR driver Bubba Wallace. Wallace rose from obscurity and a lack of sponsorship support on the ridiculous insinuation that a garage door rope was really a threatening hangman's noose. Two years ago, Charles Booker thought he could ride the momentum of Black Lives Matter and his participation in Breonna Taylor protests to challenge Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell for his seat. During his bid for the Democratic nomination, Booker ran a more traditional campaign. He espoused stereotypical far-left Bernie Sanders-approved political policies such as universal health care and the Green New Deal. Booker failed to get out of the Democratic primary. He lost to Amy McGrath, who lost a relatively close race to McConnell. Here's what uh, Charles Booker sounded like just two years ago. Check this commercial out. You know the name of the man I'm talking about, but he doesn't know your name. He doesn't see you in the hospital bed or the checkout line or at the safety drills in your classroom. He doesn't see you at all. How many times are we gonna reelect politicians who don't laugh at our jokes, who don't sing at our churches, or who wouldn't call to show us support when we get laid off or get in a car wreck? He doesn't need hope or faith. He's got money and power. And the more power he's won in Washington, the more we've lost in Kentucky. This millionaire friends mine our land, our labor, without paying a living wage. He denies climate change, and he denies us a future. 
And this man knows more than anybody how to work the system in Washington. He's the architect, but he's done nothing for Kentucky because he's not your neighbor. He's not your brother. He ain't even from here. I grew up in the West End of Louisville. I live in 40203, the poorest zip code in the state. Growing up, I remember so often my mom would go without eating dinner just to save food for me. But I still went to school hungry and tired sometimes. I lived that. And I knew it didn't have to be that way. So I had faith that things could get better. I had faith because I saw my grandparents opening up their homes to foster care. I saw my neighbors fighting back on the picket line. And I saw my uncle become an advocate after my cousin was murdered. Teachers, students, union leaders were all believers. And my mom always told me that if you have faith just the size of a mustard seed, you can speak to a mountain. And that mountain has to move. I'm not the alternative to Mitch McConnell. We are. This isn't the type of deal where someone can just run for office or someone can just ask for your vote. Nah, I'm asking for that kind of perseverance you only find in Kentucky. I'm asking us to build that kind of community you only find in Kentucky. Kentucky needs a movement. And we need to start talking about our dreams again. We need a Green New Deal to create thousands of good jobs right here in the Commonwealth to help us do what we do best. Take care of one another. We can guarantee new jobs for teachers and nurses, build new hospitals and schools, and we can win Medicare for all so that nobody has to die because they don't have money in their pocket. We can win real democracy in Washington and the workplace. And when we win, we show that something new is happening in Kentucky. Because we're not a joke. We're not a tragedy. I know Kentucky is the future. And America should follow our lead. So, I don't know if you're keeping score at home, but Charles Booker, and, and I don't say this flippantly, but maybe I do say it a little bit flippantly, but if you're counting at home, he's had three uncles lynched and an uncle who I think he said found his murdered cousin. So, this, this man is like, he's, a participant in a mass murder scheme that has included three uncles and a cousin. Think, I, I don't wanna be a part of the Booker family. The life expectancy is not long. Booker supporters, uh, of course, blame racism of the white Democrats for his primary defeat to Amy McGrath. It's no surprise Booker is back campaigning with a racially divisive message. It's the primary message of the dead Negro Confederacy. The Grand Wizard of the DNC, Barack Obama, modeled the strategy in the immediate aftermath of the Uvalde massacre. Obama told the dead Negro Confederacy, quote, as we grieve the children of Uvalde, we should take time to recognize that two years have passed since the murder of George Floyd. The DNC does everything it can to keep dead Negroes top of mind for the American public. Wednesday, President Joe Biden commemorated the Tulsa race massacre, tweeting, quote, Today, we remember the hell unleashed uh, 101 years ago in Tulsa, where Greenwood was raided, firebombed, and destroyed by a violent white supremacist mob. It wasn't a riot, it was a massacre. We must continue to reckon with, reckon with the past and work to build a more just future. 
The dead Negro Confederacy strikes again. Democrats do not offer solutions. They tell black people to lock their eyes on the rearview mirror or risk being caught from behind by racists. It's the dead Negro Confederacy, the conspiracy theory of choice for the left. In their preferred conspiracy, the only thing standing between black people and a noose is the dead Negro Confederacy. Vote Democrat or die. That's the same message the KKK sounded when six former Confederate soldiers founded the organization in 1865. The KKK worked on behalf of the DNC. It's always been the dead Negro Confederacy. Dead Negroes have long served as the platform to elevate Democrat politicians. It explains why the dead Negro Confederacy is perfectly comfortable with Planned Parenthood and the astronomical number of black babies killed during abortions. It also explains why cities controlled by the dead Negro Confederacy have high murder rates among their black citizens and support defunding the police. The dead Negro Confederacy strives to make black people vulnerable and dependent on the goodwill of government. The DNC is against self-sufficiency and self-defense. It has pitted law-abiding black people against law enforcement by convincing black people that we're all George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, or Emmett Till. Truth is, we're not. Tamir Rice is not analogous to Emmett Till, a 14-year-old brutally killed in 1955 after a white woman accused him of untoward behavior. An over-aggressive police officer made a tragic decision to shoot Rice while the 12-year-old was holding a toy gun. The only people who should worry about dying the way Floyd did are people who regularly use fentanyl and think it's wise to disobey police officers for 20 straight minutes. If you're a woman who believes you could be killed in a similar fashion to Breonna Taylor, I strongly urge you to get a new boyfriend. Ditch him for a man strong enough to leave you in the bedroom while he checks on the trouble at the front door and one smart enough to not indiscriminately fire his gun at police or intruders on the other side of the door. Everyone else? should be asking themselves what they find so redeeming about the dead Negro Confederacy. Perhaps it's the organization's position on climate change. Let's hope it's not the DNC's affinity for dead <laughs> Yes, I said it. I hope they bleep it out, but that's what it's all about. Mmm, love that fire. Like Friday's fire uh, just as much. Uh, ESPN's Mark Jones. This is kind of a look into just how weird my brain is. I'm watching the NBA Finals. Mark Jones irritates me at the in the final seconds by bringing up the insurrection uh, in a crazy way. And so I just talk about how the social media matrix fries all of our brains, lives off dishonesty, disinformation, division. Check out this fire starter. The problem with North Northern California's social media apps is they reward the inept, the dishonest, the insecure, and the power hungry. They incentivize values and characteristics that contradict America's best ideals for success. There's no advantage to proper grammar and punctuation. 
The same can be said for informed opinion or researched information. The apps embolden the illiterate and uninformed. They bait illogical and deceit. Platform, the platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, etc., are stages which induce performance. Performance is an inauthentic act disguised as authentic. The lifeblood of social media is inauthentic acting, which is another way of saying disinformation. Chew on that for a moment. The apps trying to police disinformation depend on it. Social media is the matrix, the wonderland dramatized in the Matrix movie series. Now you won't believe when I started thinking about all this. <laughs> it was all late last night during the final minutes of the Boston Celtics 12-point victory over the Golden State Warriors in the NBA Finals. Boston guard Marcus Smart drained a baseline three-pointer to give his team a 114-103 lead, provoking ESPN broadcaster Mark Jones to shout, the Celtics have stormed ahead. The insurrection has them leading by 11. Listen for yourself. The Celtics have stormed ahead. This insurrection has them leading by 11. No, I'm laying in bed. I'm peacefully watching a basketball game. Why would a sports broadcaster call in the NBA's most important event, inject divisive politics into the broadcast? Why would he in any way take the viewers' minds away from the players on the court and divert attention to politics? The only exclamation is the social media matrix. Jones cast himself as Neo or Morpheus or Trinity in the latest Matrix reboot. The Matrix, insurrections. In Jones's version of the Matrix, he chooses the blue pill and remains in the fantasy world maintained via Twitter. Like many public figures, content creators and influencers, Jones prefers the matrix over reality. He's insecure, phony, dishonest, and power hungry. The social media matrix blesses and curses his career. Without it, Jones would not be filling in for COVID positive teammate Mike Breen during the NBA Finals. Because of it, ESPN surrendered to the diversity, inclusion, and equity gods and paired Jones with Mark Jackson and Lisa Salters for an allegedly history-making all-black broadcast team for Thursday's Game 1. The Matrix rewards racial politics, but at what price? The price is the curse. Jones has had to abandon reality and adopt a racially and politically polarizing persona that betrays his real life. Jones's Twitter bio reveals the identity dysphoria the social media matrix has brought on his life. His avatar is a Black Lives Matter fist. He's another love the fruit, hate the tree BLM supporter. He's married to a white woman. I don't point that out as a criticism. It's an observation about many of the most passionate BLM supporters. They tend to love the black lives that exist outside their home and bedroom as a way of compensating for moving to all white neighborhoods with their all white wives.
I'm not criticizing their choice of partners. I'm questioning their authenticity. The most, pe the, the people most determined to stamp out white supremacy love the fruit of white supremacy, the white woman, but pretend to hate the tree that produced the fruit. It's the equivalent of loving the Big Mac and hating Ronald McDonald. <laughs> I don't buy it. Ronald McDonald is a damn good man. BLM is a Marxist organization and promotes Marxist principles. Marxism is hostile towards religion, particularly Christianity. Jones's Twitter bio lists a Bible verse, Psalms 110, verse one, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we can assume Jones is a man of some religious faith. That faith should cause him to reject Black Lives Matter. All lives matter to Christians. The Bible never addresses race or racism. Race should be inconsequential to a Christian. It appears Jones struggles with idolatry, the root of all sin. He suffers from racial and political idolatry. His, his dominant Twitter image is a picture of himself with President Barack Obama. The social media matrix has tortured Jones's mind to the point of delusion. Two years ago, at the height of the St. George Floyd celebration, Jones tweeted, quote, Saturday at my football game, I'll tell the police officer on duty to protect me. He can just take the day off. I'd rather not have the officer shoot me because he feared for his life because of my black skin or the other dumb ish. I'm not signing my own death certificate. <laughs> Jones followed that doozy of a tweet with another one uh, saying, quote, police never saved me, never helped me, never protected me, never taken a bullet from me. They pulled guns on me never kept me safe in a protest, never stopped the racists from taking my Black Lives Matter flag off my house. I could do without them. Breonna Taylor, Defund 12. Oh, I'm sorry, hashtag Breonna Taylor, hashtag Defund 12. Now, in previous years, before the death of St. George Floyd, Jones had tweeted out pictures of himself with white police officers, thanking them for providing him escort to and from games. Mark Jones is a social media activist. He performs for social media clout. The apps are the enemy of truth and authenticity. Disinformation and division fuel the platforms. That's, that's what I was thinking about at the end of game one of the NBA Finals. I know, I'm really weird. All right, that's it and that's all for us this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back next week with some more great shows. Enjoy your weekend. Hi.